Well, good morning, church family. This is your first time at Windsor Road. My name is Randy, and we're just uh, so glad. Uh, I'm just so glad that we are together here today, and um, we are going to talk about prayer today. Now, speaking of prayer, I had my car washed last Monday. Uh, Scott Oltoff's our resident meteorologist elder. He said this is going to be a beautiful week, so not going to be rain. So last Monday, I thought, I'm going to get that thing washed, because the elder said so, something like that. (laughs) So I get done with the car wash, and I got the full, you know, spray-on wax thing, and I'm getting ready to pull out of my car wash, and I see the vacuum place, right? I thought, you know, my carpet's looking a little unkempt. I'm going to get that taken care of, too. So I pull in and had some quarters. Drop in a quarter. You know how much it usually costs, 75 cents, right? I drop in one quarter. I drop in a second quarter. And typically the way these things work is when you drop in the third quarter, it just comes on, and then it's a, and then it's a, a race to beat the clock, Right? Right? Put it in my first quarter, put it in my second quarter, nothing happened. Put it in my third quarter, nothing happened. Check the price, not 75 cents. I put in my fourth quarter, nothing happened. Now I have anger issues, (laughs) right? And you know what I did? I quit. I just left. I mean, I was going to go on the other side to see if that other side of that bay worked as well because it looked nicer and better. And just as I was about to put in another quarter there, I realized there was no vacuum hose at all. It's like, I'm done. I quit. And I'll bet you, I'll bet you that that's how some of us think of prayer. We kind of put in our prayer quarters, we drop them in the machine, and nothing happens. And, we, and, 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 you know, okay, we'll put in maybe another quarter. We may go up to a buck and a half, but after that, we're done. We're absolutely done. We, I quit praying, we say, because it's not working. It's not working. I'm putting in all this money. I'm putting in all this prayer. It's just, you know, and prayer is a vending machine. You ever thought like that? I mean, I've thought like that. But maybe that's not the point of prayer. Maybe the point of prayer is not I try to figure out how I can best say it or maybe as long as I want to say it so that I can get what I want. Maybe the point of prayer is not I, me, my. Maybe that's not the point of prayer. Well, what is the point of prayer? That's what I want to talk about today. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. 
It's on page 827 of your church Bibles. And this passage of Scripture does not say all that there is to say about prayer. It does say something very important about the purpose of prayer. And so let's listen to the Apostle Paul as he wrote to Christians in the ancient city of Ephesus 2,000 years ago. I believe that words for Christians then are for us today. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. It's also up on your screen behind me. The Apostle Paul says, For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints. By the way, that's an excellent definition of a Christian, isn't it? Trusting Jesus, loving saints. I have not stopped giving thanks for you. For you, not to you. Paul never thanks someone for becoming a Christian, does he? I want to thank you for becoming. It's not like he's, you know, servicing a client here. But he gives thanks to God for them. I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. The riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion and every title that can be given not only in the present age but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over, ev- for, over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This is God's word. Our scripture today is about prayer. In fact, it is a prayer. In fact, the entire first chapter of Ephesians is about prayer. It is is about prayer and it is prayer. After Paul's introductory remarks in uh, verses 1 and 2, verse 3 through 14 is one prayer. It's like a doxology, a prayer of praise to God for his blessings. It's a, and the New Testament comes to us by way of the Greek, and verses 3 through 14 is one sentence long in the Greek. And guess what? Verses 15 to 23, 
That's also one sentence. Paul is the king of run-on sentences. He makes English teachers cry. But in these verses that we just read, this one sentence prayer, Paul says, I want you to know, church, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. I'm praying, I, have, I remember you. It's been, it's been a long time since he's seen them. Has he forgotten them? No, I'm remembering you. And, and what is it he prays? What is, what is it that the apostle Paul is praying concerning the church, the believers, the saints in Ephesus, keeping in mind that the apostle Paul is in prison as he prays for this church. Now, if I were writing you a letter, I would be the one asking you to pray for me. Get me out of here. Paul doesn't say that. He says, I want you to know that I'm praying for you. And what is it that he's praying? Verse 17, I'm praying that the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ might give you the Spirit. Did you get the Trinity there? The Holy Trinity is involved in prayer. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit might give you the Spirit, Paul says, of wisdom and revelation. That word means insight. Insight, perspective. And why? I pray that God may give you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, insight. For what purpose? So that you may know God better. So that you may, Paul prays that the church community would know God better, would know God more and more. And I think that's what Paul's point is about prayer. To know God, to know him better. God wants me to pray to him so that I will know him better. Who here can say that they know God well enough? You who've just become a Christian. You who've been a believer for decades. I I mean, isn't this the kind of prayer that all of us, that all of us need to be praying to know God? Listen, if there's one thing that I want you to get as far as the life and ministry of this church family is that God wants to be known. He wants us to know him Jesus said in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. To know God is to have eternal life. To know God is the most joyful experience in all of life. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, and let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands me and knows me. Knows me. Pray to know God and and listen to me. To know God is more important 
than you putting money in the offering plate. It is. God said through the prophet Hosea, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Oh, church family, if you're going to pray a prayer, pray to know God. God, I want to know you. I want to know you better than I did yesterday. Now, what does that mean to know to know God? Well, it, it, it means knowing him in, in relationally, personally. It doesn't mean knowing God in terms of, you know, knowing what's going to be on the test for Friday. It doesn't mean knowing informational facts or, or a kind of a bullet list on a PowerPoint level. But relational. Uh, Ray Ortland is a pastor. He made this comment. I think it's important for us to hear. He says, I think many Christians in the U.S. know God in the same way they know the U.S. president. They know some facts about him, where he lives, what he does, and so on. But they don't have relational knowledge of the actual person who is president. And when the Bible talks about knowing God, it's a familial relationship. It's a parent-child relationship. That's why Paul says in Ephesians, he talks about the God of our Lord Jesus, the glorious what? Father. There's a reason he said Father as opposed to Redeemer. And that would have been true, as would have been creator or ruler. But he uses the word father. Why? Because God wants us to know him as his father. And, and, and like a parent-child relationship. And out of that relationship, the child understands what the parent wants. And that confirms the knowledge, and that produces trust, and it fosters obedience. So, so it's the difference between knowing, a, knowing someone and knowing about someone, you see. And Jesus made it very clear to his disciples that if you know me, you know me, then you know the Father. And Jesus says he is the fullest, highest, deepest, most complete, most perfect display of who God is. Jesus is the clearest lens into the nature and person of God ever. Christianity is not mastering a set of principles or lessons. Christianity is mastering a relationship with a person. And Jesus makes it clear that to know him is to know God. And, and you, I can see this in Paul's heart as he's writing these verses. And that leads him in these verses to also see that, that knowing God is about grasping certain spirit-given truths. Spirit-given truths about who he is, and about who we are. And that's why Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I can't help but think of the psalmist in Psalm 119 who prayed, Oh Lord, open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. And Paul prays that this church would grasp certain Spirit-given truths. I want you to know, I want you to pray so that you can know these Spirit-given truths. And what are they? Well, here they are. 
I want you to know the hope. I want you to know the inheritance. And I want you to know the power. Let's talk about each of these spirit-given truths in the time that remains. First, the hope. God wants us to pray, to know the hope to which he's called us, the hope. Now, Andy Crouch is the editor of uh, Christianity Today. And he wrote that you know, humans can live 40 days without food. They can live four days without water. They can live four minutes without air. But we cannot live four seconds without hope. Without hope. God wants us to pray that we would know the hope. But what kind of hope? What's the substance of our hope? What form of hope are we talking about? Because there's different kinds. And I want to talk about one kind that uh, really just broke my heart as I was reading it this week. It's a form of hope. It was, it's, a, it, it's a pseudo-hope. It's a... I believe, a form of hope that was described in a very well-written essay by Andy Crouch titled, uh, The Secular Prophet, and it concerns the late Steve Jobs. This essay, The Secular Prophet, was not so much about his life, Jobs' life, as so much his hope, his, his worldview, his belief system. Uh, in his essay, Crouch rightly calls Jobs an extraordinary designer, an innovator, a leader. And he wrote, his most singular quality was, Steve's most singular quality was his ability to articulate, get this, a perfectly secular form of hope. And he cited uh, Jobs' celebrated Stanford commencement address a few years ago in which Jobs said this. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is the destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It's life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for new. Right now, the new is you. But someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it's quite true. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Crouch wrote it as a As a convert to Zen Buddhism, Jobs was as convinced as anybody could be that this life is all there is. And yet on closer inspection, Crouch observed that this this form of hope, this kind of secular hope is is at best self-generated hope. The, the, The kind of hope whose only comfort is in being true to oneself. And so Crouch respectfully asks the question, how does such secular hope address tragedy and evil? The the kind that takes the lives not 
only of those 56 years of age, but those five or six years of age. Crouch said, such hope in the face of such evil seems strangely hopeless. And why? Because at the end of the day, all that secular hope has to offer is the hope that your mortal life can be elegant and meaningful even if it will soon be dated, dusty, and discarded like a 2001 iPod. You know, I shared that with Sarah yesterday, and, you know, when those words came out of my mouth audibly, I mean, we just kind of looked at each other, and just sadness came over us, you know. I'm encouraged by Paul's hope in verse 18. When he says, I want you to know the hope to which he has called you. In verse 18, you see, hope is a glorious condition. In verse 18, hope is a glorious place. Paul wrote of the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father. In some of your translations, the Father of glory. Church family, that's a condition. That's a place. It has to do with the heavenly realms. Hope has to do with new, immortal, spiritual bodies in the new heavens and the new earth in the very presence of Jesus Christ, serving and worshiping as a community. And that's what biblical hope is. And in the Bible, the word hope does not equal wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is about rock-solid certainty. And interestingly enough, in Crouch's essay that I just cited, he spoke of this kind of hope in the life of another leader, Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr. On April the 3rd, 1968, King said, like anybody, I would like to live a long life. That kind of Sounds a little bit like what Jobs said in his speech. Longevity has its place, King said. But I'm not concerned about that right now. And and here is where Dr. King turned a corner that Mr. Jobs never did. King said, I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up on the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. And I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. And so I'm happy tonight and I'm not worried about anything and I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. And the next day, you know, he was assassinated. So which of these two hopes are yours? I mean, it's a fair question. And it's a question we need to think critically about. What's the substance of your hope? Which which hope do you allow between your ears? And which form of hope serves as the operating system of your life and your decisions? Paul says, church... I am praying, 
I am praying that the Holy Spirit will give you insight so that you will know and experience and live in such a way that clearly shows not self-generated hope, but Christ-empowered hope. Christ-generated hope. The kind of hope not just for this age, but for the age to come, Paul says. Is that hope yours? Are you praying about that? I really believe that that's the kind of prayer that God would answer. So pray. Pray to know the hope to which he's called us. And, 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 and why, why, why would God answer that prayer? Why would he do that? Well, that leads us to this second spirit-infused truth. That leads us to this word inheritance. God, God, God wants us to pray to know the hope. God wants us to pray to know that, that we are his inheritance, his most precious treasure. Look at verse 18. That we may know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now, note that the Apostle Paul did not say the riches of our glorious inheritance. Like, so when I get to heaven, I get it. That's not what this is talking about here. We are his inheritance. God has a glorious inheritance. Think about that. Think about that. What, what inheritance, what gift, what do you get the God who has everything? What could possibly cause God to say, I've always wanted that? Huh? You know what the answer is? Us. Us, that's what this says. The glorious inheritance in the saints. How how does that work? Oh, you know, parents, you know. Why, why Why do parents act the way they do at their kids' ball game? Why do, why do they beam with pride at their kids' awards banquets and graduation ceremonies, huh? Why do fathers just bawl their eyes out at their son's wedding, especially when he's officiating? Why? And have you ever been into a courtroom and you look at the defendant and then you look at the defendant's parents? Why are those parents despairing unto death in a courtroom over their accused and or convicted child? Why? Why why do we ache, and I mean, when I mean ache, I mean we physically ache. Why, why is it that just thinking about either of my sons aching just messes me up, puts me in a puddle? Why? We can't help it, can we, parents? Our children are our glory, and when they're radiant, we're radiant, and when they're not, we're not. And to know that we are God's glorious inheritance is to know that he has bound his glory with us. With us. With us. 
Yeah. Well, why would he do this? Well, it's not because of anything special about us. It's not like we deserve it. <laughs> Ephesians 5.8 says, Paul says to the Ephesians, you were once darkness. He doesn't say you were in darkness. He says, no, you were darkness. But because of his great love for us, we are his inheritance. The inheritance in the saints. And notice Paul uses the word saints. In the Bible, saints does not mean elite Christians. It means us. It means believers. It means Christians. He prizes us because he loves us. And the reason why he loves us is because he loves us. He loves us. And, and, and if you will just let that spirit-infused truth seep into your life, it has profound implications, for instance, to know that we are God's treasured inheritance is to know that when we disobey him, it's not just like we're breaking his rules. It's like we are stomping on his heart. And who would do that? To know that we are God's glorious inheritance is to know, is to know something else. It's to know that if you have Christ, you have the honor of the king. And why would you ever fret over the opinion of another serf when you have the honor of the king? Church, my biggest challenge as a Christian as your pastor, is that I have yet to fully grasp what I have in Christ. And when, I, when the eyes of my heart have been opened so that I can see with crystal clarity, crystal clarity, then that just leads to humility. Because all that I have in me being Christ's prized possession has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Him. And furthermore, when you, when, when you get the spirit-infused truth that you are God's inheritance, and when your eyes are open, you will be able to see the possibility of this inheritance in someone else's life. Possibly the person in your life that you would think is your thorn. Yeah, I, I, I hope that none of us None of us would ever say, well, I, 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 I might pray for that person, but I'm not going to hold my breath because they're just not the Christian type. Really? Really? Well, that, you know, that just proves that you don't understand this word inheritance because the fact of the matter is we aren't the Christian type either. We're not. But here we are because of Christ. We're his inheritance. We've been called to a hope. The word church means the called out ones. We've been called to a hope. And in that hope, we are his inheritance, his treasure. Are we praying about that? Are, are we praying to have our eyes open to see and value the honor of Jesus more than the praise of this world? Are we praying to grasp the truth, the reality that God treasures me and that every person who walks in front of my life, that potential exists in them? 
And am I praying about that? Praying to know the hope? Praying to know the inheritance? And then thirdly, praying to know the power. God wants me to know, to pray, so that I'll know how powerful he is. Paul says, I pray that you may know his incomparably, verse 19, great power for us who believe. His incomparably great power. Now, what kind of power comes to your mind when you think about the power of God? The power of creation? The power of creating a water molecule, a quark, the Grand Canyon? If you could distill God's infinite, glorious power into one succinct picture, what might that picture be? Well, for Paul, it is the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. His incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. Paul is not talking about a resurrected teaching system or a belief system that eventually went viral across the Roman Empire. He's talking about a time-space event in history where a dead man got up and walked out of the grave never to die again. That's what he's talking about here. And furthermore, Paul goes on. He says, in Christ's rising, God has enthroned him in the heavenly realm and placed him, listen, placed him Far above, not barely above, not head and shoulders above, but far above, 99 to nothing above, all rule and authority, power and dominion. And those four words, rule, authority, power, and dominion, surface later in Ephesians as Paul is talking about demonic and angelic powers. And God has placed him and given him every title that can be given. And not only in the present age, but in the one to come. See? And Paul asserts that because of Christ's resurrection, there is coming, and this is our hope, there is coming another mighty resurrection for those of us who are in Christ. In fact, as far as God is concerned, it's already happened. In principle, we're already with Christ. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I want you to hear this from Ephesians 2, 6. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Folks, it's done. It's done. Now, God just wants us to live the way he already sees us. You see, the truth is this. Death is not the single best invention of life. Death is not life's change agent. Death does not clear out the old to make way for the new. Jesus would say, not true. Death is a sting. Death is a penalty. Death is the enemy, the last enemy. 
And death is not life's change agent. Jesus would say, I am life's change agent. And right now, the new is not you. It's not. Right now, the old is you. The perishable is you. The mortal is you. Right now, you're old. You're weak. You're mortal. You're frail. You're dead. You're darkness. You're helpless. Jesus says, apart from me, you can't do anything. But I am the resurrection and the life. I am life's change agent. And I'm the only one capable of transforming your lowly bodies in the likeness of my glorious body. Church family, now that is power. Paul is assuring believers in Ephesus and in Champaign that this very power is on display and is available through the life of his church, which is why Paul says, and God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, that's us, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That power is available For us. I'm talking about the power of serving. I'm talking about the power of meeting needs with love. I'm talking about the power of blessing our community by serving our community. I'm talking about the power of putting secret sins to death. The power of conquering our addictions. The power of destroying the idols that enslave us. The power of reconciliation, the power of forgiveness, the power of healing relationships, the power of restored marriages, the power of sacrifice, the power of generosity, the power that is available so that I can continue to grow and mature and be the man or woman of God that God has called me to be. And it's a power possessed by the one whom God has put everything under his feet and that's available for us. Do you see why we need to pray about this? Pray to know God more and more. Pray to know these crucial truths, these spirit-infused truth concerning hope and inheritance and power. And why would God answer that prayer? Why would God answer that prayer? Well, Paul says, I left the best part of this section for last. Paul says in verse 15, for this reason. For what reason? That goes back up to what he said in verses 3 through 14. What's he say there? Well, he says, I want you to pray to know me. For what reason? Because I know you. I know you. And that's really what matters most, right? Not the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me, the fact that I am graven on the palms of his hands, the fact that I am never out of his mind. All of my knowledge of God depends upon his sustained initiative in knowing me. I can know him because he he knew me first. And he continues to know me. 
And He continues to know me in Christ as a beloved Son. And there's not a moment when His eye is off me. There's not a moment when His attention is distracted from me. And there's not a moment when His care falters. There's not. And that's what's life-changing. That is life-changing knowledge. And, and, and there is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good so that, you know what? The only reason why God wouldn't answer my prayer is because he loves me. That's why. That's the only reason why. And there's tremendous relief in knowing that, that his love to me is based on every... He knows the worst about me and he still loves me. There's no discovery about my life that can disillusion him. There's nothing that I can do or say that will say, what? It just doesn't work like that. For this reason, and for this reason, he knew my weakness and frailty, and that's what sent his son to the cross. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes now?